And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Wednesday, April 29th. 2020, and I have our good friend Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Hospital on the line. How are you, Pam? I'm great. How are you, Rich? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I uh, Every day, again, seems like Groundhog Day. Every day is kind of the same as the previous day. Not a lot of change. I'm hoping that things are changing a little bit on your end. Uh, do they seem to be? Well, it last week it was sunny out. Today I'm looking out and it's rainy, so that's a change. <laughs> I wish it was sunny still, but um, yeah, that's changing slightly. So last week, just to give you an update on where we're at, last week we had said we had 61 inpatients. Today we have 58. Um, last week we had seven rule-outs. Today we have eight rule-outs. When I look at it over the week, it's gone between 54 to 58, so we're hovering right around the same total number of patients that are in the hospital. Um, we have had 37 deaths to date, which last week was 30, and uh, last week we had had 149 discharges. This week we're up to 154 discharges. In DuPage County, the last week we had 1,761 positive patients. This week it's 2,736, so that's quite a large growth. Wow. And the state last week was 31,513, and as of today, there's 48,102. Now, part of that growth is because there's been expanded testing, and so when you test more, you find more positives, so I wouldn't worry about the growth, but it really is the number of patients in the hospital, and that hasn't gone up dramatically. Wow, that, those are big numbers, though, but I understand that obviously the testing being uh more prevalent is is leading to that. Can you um tell us I asked you a little bit last week about the daffodil program at the hospital. Can you uh explain that for those that didn't listen last week and kind of give us an update on that? Absolutely. I think it's one of the best programs we've done. We are currently recognizing every patient who has been in the hospital who has been um positive with coronavirus who ends up being discharged from the hospital by doing two things. One is we have a 24-inch daffodil lawn ornament that we are placing in front of the hospital, symbolically representing their health and their new beginnings and hope for the future. Uh, then we also give them a live daffodil to take home and plant to remember that they have overcome this disease. And they get a card, you know, thanking them for trusting us with their care and wishing them the best of luck as they move forward past this disease. I uh, got an advanced copy of tomorrow's Elmhurst Independent, and uh, the Daffodil Program is on the front cover of the Independent. <laughs> you're on there some, actually, you're on there twice, but once you're kind of partially blocked out. So look for that tomorrow. So that, I think that's a great program, and we really need to look for the positive in this, don't we? We absolutely do, and I think we need to look for the hope in the future because we will get through this, but it is uh, very trying while we're going through this whole journey of ours. Sure is. Uh, can you give us some updates on staff who may have tested positive and, and whether or not any have been admitted? Yes. So um, last week we had said there were 28 um, Elmhurst employees that had tested positive. 
What I didn't do was divide it into how many of them worked in the hospital and how many of them worked in our physician practice division. So this week, Elmhurst Hospital has 18 staff that work in the hospital that have tested positive and 15 staff that work in our physician practice division that have tested positives for a total of 33 staff members. And of those staff members, uh, to my knowledge, none of them are hospitalized. We did have one laundry um, employee hospitalized, and I believe she is out of the hospital at this point. Great, great. Um, you know, you, you don't want any to test positive, but those numbers seem to be pretty low and not increasing too much. And the fact that some of them were on the physician side, what exactly does that mean when they're, they're not on the hospital side? Well, that means that they're employed within um, our outpatient physician offices, so the Elmhurst Clinic, Elmhurst Medical Associates. Um, they work in those areas. They do not work in the hospital. Many of those places have um, not been seeing patients or seeing them just through virtual visits. So it, me it means that most of them, if not all, were community acquired. And in the hospital, of those 18, only a few worked on um, one of our COVID units. The rest of them worked in areas that don't see COVID patients. So that means that we're, they were most likely community acquired um, getting COVID, which is should be expected because in the hospital we take all kinds of precautions to prevent the spread of the disease, but in the community it's a lot harder to take precautions because you don't know who's touched what and whether they've been positive or not, and they may not even know they were positive. You know, one of the questions I was thinking about earlier was if somebody off the street were to, you know, be able to watch a video camera of what's going on in a COVID unit, would it kind of look like science fiction in terms of how staff are dressed? Well, it, it might look like you're an astronaut in some ways. I mean, you're covered, your eyes are covered, your mouth is covered, your hands are covered, uh, you're totally covered. And it might look a little odd to even look at some of the patient rooms because we, we've done things like, um, so we don't have to use a lot of personal protective equipment up. We have these long tubes now that bring their um, IV stands outside into the hall. So you've got tubes coming from the patient going out into the hall so we can check medications and, and, um, and do things without having to go into the room. And then we've been using this um, new kind of helmet on patients for breathing so they don't have to get a ventilator. And so it, it looks like an astronaut on top of over helmet over their heads, and they can breathe oxygen through that without having to be intubated in a tube and then giving them ventilation. Wow. Um, I had a few friends reach out to me last week and say, hey, did you hear that uh, the governor called out Elmhurst Hospital as uh, being a, a great test site and doing a lot of good things. So did, did you hear all that press, I assume? I did hear about that, and I'll tell you a little bit about what, that was, what he was talking about. So um, the state has opened some testing sites, I'm sure you've heard that, where they will allow people who have symptoms to go through the site. I think there's a charge to it. And um, healthcare workers and first responders who um, want to be tested, they can go through the sites as well. And so the state needed people to run the tests. And there are only 12 hospitals in the state of Illinois who have the Abbott M2000 platform that can run these tests. And we are one of the 12 hospitals. So the governor's office reached out to us and asked us if we would run some tests for this testing site, the, one, the new one in Aurora. And so we are uh, providing 300 tests per day 
um, we are running for for the state so that people can get these test results back. The program's only um, scheduled to go to the end of June. Okay. I don't know if it'll be extended, but we'll be doing it up till then. Do you um just a, an off the wall question? When you take temperatures of employees, for instance, because a lot of a lot of folks in the community are going to have to start abiding by different rules. Do you use, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, those those temperature guns where that you point at a forehead? How does that work? Well, we've done several things. We've done a regular thermometer that we have a digital thermometers that uh, are better than the little ones you buy in the store. They're um, that we use in, when you go to a doctor's office. You've seen them. They've sure. got little covers on them. We've done that. We also use the guns. So we do have um, guns at all of our entry-level sites into all of our organization. And we've done it on the forehead, and then at times that seems too low, so we'll do it on the neck. The neck seems to be a little bit better receptor for accuracy. So if you have a gun at home, because I got one from Amazon for my house, uh, try it on your neck, because if you're having trouble when you do it on your forehead and it doesn't seem to be the right temperature, the neck seems to work much better. On the side of the neck, okay. correct, under your earlobe. Okay, because I, I really think a lot of businesses are going to be having to use these, it sounds like, um, going forward. I, I don't know. It's going to depend on how the, the governor's uh, latest edict is interpreted. Um, can you give us an idea then system-wide and at Elmhurst Hospital what your testing capabilities are at this point? Yes, we're still only allowed to test. We only have enough um, supplies to test 600 patients per day. So that's across the system. Of that 600, 300 of them are from for the state for that testing site. So mm-hmm. primarily we do about 300. Um, but I think this week we will be uh, advancing the number that we can test. And the reason is our reference lab that we use, um, ARUP, A-R-U-P, ARUP, they just notified us that they have now gotten uh, more testing capability. And so they can test up to 500 uh, people for, per day. So we can do the testing and send it to them and get the results back. And we'll get that turnaround time um, fairly rapidly, just like we do here. Not quite as rapid, but within uh, 24 hours to 48 hours. And so we'll be able to do even more testing, which will bring us up to about 1,200 per day. I know the uh, governor's latest guidance said that um, they were going to allow some um, elective surgeries subject to whatever their specific guidance was. Can you tell us a little bit about that guidance and whether it's going to allow you to get up to the level of elective surgeries you were doing before the pandemic? And if not, approximately how many you'll be doing? Yes, I think um, the guidance was was developed both with the governor and with the hospitals because we had input through IHA in um, some of the guidelines for being able to open along with the CDC and um, Illinois Department of Public Health. So what we're going to be able to do is as of May 11th, as long as we meet some criteria, which is that we have 20% um, open beds for intensive care patients, 20% availability of um, ventilators, and 20% availability of regular medical surgical beds, we can then be able to open to elective surgeries. Now, um, you know, when you think about it, 
that may limit how many surgeries we bring in, and it wouldn't be up to what our capacity was before we um, had the pandemic, because we actually would run at 90%, 100% occupancy um, much of the year. So it's still going to limit how much we can have come in. But starting May 11th, we're thinking we'll get up to about 50% of what we were doing before the pandemic. And we're hoping if everything goes well, we can ramp up to 75% um, by June 1st. Great. Um, I, I noticed that um, in the governor's um, guidance, uh, not the specific guidance, but the general um, before they issued the specific, that it said that they would likely require you to to test uh, elective surgery patients for COVID. And my recollection was that you're currently not testing your other non-COVID patients. Is that is that true that you're not or you weren't? We weren't, and um, you're right. That that is one of the requirements. We we have to test patients prior to surgery to make sure that they are not positive for COVID, and um, that will start when we start bringing back the elective surgeries. We also have to have a surgical um, steering committee that looks at all of our processes. So to make sure the staff feels safe, to make sure the patients feel safe, et cetera. Um, but we will we have that surgical steering committee started, and they are developing all the criteria for what patients can come in, how we will test patients, how long before the surgery they need to be tested, um, you know, what door we bring them in to keep them safe, to make sure it's clean. But we believe that we will be able to have a very, very safe, seamless process for our patients to come back in and start having elective surgeries. Great. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, you, you scared me like crazy when you told me that one of the key indicators of whether somebody would suffer uh, from from COVID worse than others was obesity. And so I have, I have a follow-up question, and that is, um, because it's a disease that attacks the lungs, how are, uh, are smokers faring worse or the same as others through this? You know, it, that's such a good question, and it's pretty funny um, that you asked me that question today because last night my niece emailed me and she said, I heard that smokers do better with this COVID disease than non-smokers. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So she sent me a link that was a doctor from Northwestern who was talking about a study in Italy and somewhere else that said that uh, smokers seem to not get as sick as non-smokers. So they were saying, oh, should we start putting nicotine patches on people or should we have people start smoking so they could not be as sick with the COVID? So I went to our uh, infectious disease a physician specialist today and asked him about this because I could not believe that that would, that would be true. And um, what is true is that there has been some evidence that there uh, is less poor outcomes, not that you don't get COVID, but less poor outcomes or death from people who smoke. But the reason why uh, that might be true is not known or understood or even validated that it's true. What he did say is that if you are an early smoker, you may not have underlying lung disease. And so it's really the underlying lung disease that impacts your ability to handle the disease. And so if your lungs are bad from smoking, which would be related to the tar in cigarettes that then impact your lungs, 
then um, it, you would have trouble. But if you don't have the underlying lung disease, it may not negatively impact you. But he said those studies are not validated yet, and he would never, ever say that um, the risk of smoking is much more dangerous on your health overall than trying to smoke just to not have a bad outcome from COVID. Sure. I, um, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out in, you know, a year or two from now, the research. But, you know, you would certainly assume that a smoker would uh, fare worse. But who knows? Um, you've probably heard in, in the news every once in a while folks saying that, that the virus doesn't do well outdoors. It, um, it's, it's much more difficult to catch outdoors. Obviously, there's breezes and this and that. But does that seem to be the case, do you think? Well, that is actually true. And the reason is because the air and the wind diffuses the, um, the concentration of the virus. And so in closed spaces, it stays concentrated, and that's when you're more at risk to catch it. But if you're outside and you're far enough away from each other, it kind of diffuses how much is in the air, and so you don't. It's not as big of a risk. So, if you can stay at least at least six feet away from each other, and you're outdoors, then wearing a mask is not necessary. But if you are close to each other, you still want to wear the mask. Okay, I've heard a lot in the news also that, and and you and I have talked about it a little bit that hospitals in general are struggling with finances because of the patient counts being down and reimbursements from COVID patients not being sufficient to cover the actual cost of, of the patient care. And so, you know, we know that to be true, but how is it affecting doctors who, uh, you know, are basically independent contractors and their staffs from a financial standpoint? Because many of them depend on elective surgery revenue to, uh, to survive. So how are they doing? So I think doctors who are employed by uh, health systems are faring slightly better because the health systems are bearing the brunt of of the um, cutbacks in terms of their revenue coming in. So, for example, Elmhurst Hospital and Edward Hospital have kept our doctors as close to what they were making as possible, although the long-term ability to do that is... Um, is not not sustainable. So hopefully we can turn things around by getting getting surgeries going again and people trusting that they can come and get health care again. Um, but I do feel for those who are independent because everybody, it's not just surgeons, but it's every single physician group, their revenues are all down, you know, and many of them have had to lay off their employees. Many of them, you know, don't don't know how they're going to pay their rents and how they're going to continue um, in business and may actually want to get employed where they've wanted to keep independent in the past because this is really hard. It's just like small businesses. I feel for all the small businesses, this is a very difficult time when you have, uh, you know, not a lot of other ways of making money and not a lot of capital um, or cash hanging around to, for, to weather these kind of storms that we were not anticipating. Sure. So, you know, I do feel for us. I do feel for the doctors. I feel for a small business. And the sooner we can get this economy moving, you know, the more we're going to try from our end to handle this illness so that people can feel confident and can get back out and, and the governor can allow businesses to start again. I think um, 
you you bring a very unique perspective because you're not just an administrator, you're a healthcare professional too. That was a lot of your career. And so I, I just am curious from what you're hearing from colleagues, um, whether you think it, will we have a vaccine someday or is there a possibility that that won't happen? We will have a vaccine, but when is the question? The question is when, and it could be a year to two years before we have one that has been proven and is safe. And, you know, it takes a lot of testing, and, but we will have one one day. I've, I've asked as many doctors as I know, and they've all said we will have one. It's just when. I just hope that um, because it's such a worldwide problem that the resources are just going to be thrown at it left and right, and maybe they can change that timeline a little bit, but obviously they have to see how patients do over time and they can't, can't make the clock go any faster. But uh, I appreciate your time today, Pam. Uh, I hope that the staff's hanging in there. You you get the feeling that they are. I'll tell you, I couldn't be more proud of the staff in our organization and particularly here at Elmhurst hospital. We have the best, most compassionate, most caring and dedicated group of individuals who want to do whatever it takes to make sure that our patients are safe, that their own families are safe, and take care of each other. And, um, you know, and being in this community with all the community support, we're just very blessed. And I feel so bad for other organizations across the country that don't have this kind of support or resources. Um, so I, I really appreciate these podcasts. I think they're extremely important for the community, and I appreciate you and everything that you're doing for our community. Well, thanks so much, and I wish that um, our community could send a whole bunch of virtual hugs to uh, you and your <laughs> staff. Um, we're looking forward to the day when we can when we can hug again, I guess, and, and get near each other. So thanks so much for your time. Uh, have a great week. Uh, keep, uh, keep doing the good work that you and your staff are doing, and I look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you, and you be safe. Now more than ever, we're asking the community of Elmhurst to please fill out your U.S. 2020 census. It's quick, safe, and easy, and you can do it online at my2020census.gov. Thank you. Hi, Scott Lamort here, drum major of the world-famous Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra, and you are listening to the E-Town Lowdown with your hosts, Robbie and Rick. And now, it's time for another installment of One Ponce a Time with lowdown legend PK and his overly enthused yesteryear expert friend, Elmhurst History Museum director, Dave Oberg. Hey, boys and girls. One Ponce a Time, did you know that a woman claiming to be the Grand Duchess Anastasia, the daughter and heir of Tsar Nicholas II, once called Elmhurst home? In 1945, a woman calling herself Eugenia Smith came to Elmhurst and lived as a guest in the home of Mrs. W.H. Emery at 284 South Kenilworth for 17 years. A talented artist with a strange accent, Smith worked for years on a biography of Anastasia, claiming to have been a confidant of the young noblewoman. Then she shocked the world with a much more dramatic announcement She was not a confidant of the Grand Duchess. She was the Grand Duchess herself. (laughs) Okay, so let's dig a little deeper on this one. Um, So when Vladimir Lenin and the Bolsheviks seized power in Russia during the October Revolution of 1917, 
they uh, imprisoned Tsar Nicholas II and his family, moving them to Yekaterinburg. And uh, there's a bloody civil war going on at the time in the fledgling Soviet Union. And the Bolsheviks began to see the royal family as a growing threat, uh, if you will, a rallying flag of sorts for their enemies. And so on July 16th of 1918, uh, the Bolsheviks executed the Tsar, his family, and several loyal family retainers. And that should have been the end of the Grand Duchess Anastasia's story. But in the years to follow, more than a dozen women would come forward claiming to be Anastasia. Each had fantastic stories of escape from her would-be executioners. Most of them were quickly dismissed as imposters, but there were two that seemed to have greater credibility and really captured the public imagination. Uh, the first one, Anna Anderson, uh, seemed to know a great deal about the Grand Duchess, <clears throat> and she would inspire the 1956 film uh, Anastasia uh, starring Ingrid Bergman, a classic film, actually. Uh, the second was um, our Eugenia Smith, a.k.a. Eugenia Smitesco, and she would make her public declaration in 1963. Uh, Mrs. Smith actually had presented the publishers, Robert Spellers and Sons, with a manuscript that year detailing the miraculous escape of Anastasia with the help of a soldier named Alexander, who had been a czarist loyalist. And she claimed uh, that she was a confidant of the royal heir. And as they explored the manuscript, she seemed to know an awful lot of incredible detail about her, perhaps more than even the closest friends would have known. And so when the publishers asked her, she replied, well, I am the Grand Duchess in her very thick, mysterious accent. And the spellers actually subjected her to about 30 hours of lie detector tests performed by a former CIA operative, and she passed. Uh, and so Robert Spellers and Sons committed to publishing her autobiography and Life Magazine carried excerpts, including sensational accounts of her escape. Um, not everyone was convinced. There were several individuals who had known Anastasia since childhood, and they called her out as an imposter. And an anthropologist compared photos of Eugenia Smith from the 1920s all the way through the 60s with those known images of Anastasia and noted there were some really distinctive differences in facial features. Uh, there was also a Chicago woman who came forward claiming to have given Smith some Russian lessons and noting that she actually spoke with a Romanian accent. Uh, nonetheless, Eugenia Smith proved a sensation. A lot of readers snapped up copies of the Life magazine, and her book, Anastasia, the Autobiography of the Grand Duchess of Russia, was published in October of 1963. And by now, Smith had moved on from Elmer's to New York City, where she was quite the fixture for a while in the city's social scenes. Uh, she had moved to Newport, Rhode Island in the 1970s, and she would while away her time painting scenes of life in the Royal Russian court. Smith actually died January 31st, 1997 at the Lafayette Nursing Home in North Kingston. And it'd be another decade before her story would be finally debunked once and for all. In 2007, the missing body of Anastasia had been discovered her identity confirmed by DNA analysis. Wow, Dave, Russian royalty right here, sort of. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right, nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.